0: Hi, my name is Maggie, and the Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 19, 15-17, and 29. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest ye be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him aside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Margaret. The New Testament reading is found in 2 Peter 2, 4 through 9. God didn't spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into the lowest level of the underworld and committed them to chains of darkness, keeping them there until the judgment. And he didn't spare the ancient world when he brought a flood on the world of ungodly people, even though he protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, along with seven others. God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to total destruction, reducing them to ashes as a warning to ungodly people. And he rescued righteous Lot, who was made miserable by the unrestrained immorality of unruly people. While that righteous man lived among them, he felt deep distress every day on account of the immoral actions he saw And heard. These things show that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their trials and how to keep the unrighteous for punishment on the judgment day. The Word of the Lord. My name is Wayne. Thank you for standing for the Gospel reading found in Luke chapter 17, 28 to 33. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. The gospel reading.
1: Praise be to our Lord Christ. Please remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fall on us who are gathered here today and open our minds to understand the scriptures. And that in that process, that you would cause our hearts to burn within us, that burning of your gracious love for us, and may that transform us into the image and likeness of Jesus, that we may go forth from this place uh, being made faithful by you, the one who is so faithful to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Is
2: this on? Good morning, New Life Downtown. I'm Holly Packiam. And if you're wondering who this was standing here, um, I have the special privilege to um, announce and Talk about our guest speaker this morning. So, who you just saw was, you can stand up if you want to. See, yeah. This is Jason Jackson, and he is a dear friend of both Glenn and I. We went to college with him in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, Glenn lived for about a year on a floor with Jason, and um, we worked together at a church in Tulsa for a time. Um, Jason was also in our wedding, so we've um, gotten to talk with him a little bit over the years, but have been more reconnecting recently. His lovely wife Sarah is here with us in the front row. They have three girls um, Cora, Avi, and Lila. Got it right. Um, so we are just so grateful to have them here with us. Um, Jason went to Asbury Theological Seminary and has a double master's. Let's see if I get this right in um, biblical studies and theological studies, and he's currently serving in Tulsa, Oklahoma, at um, Asbury United Methodist Church as the director of discipleship. So we are thrilled to have them here with us, and if you'll just welcome him with me
1: this morning. Thank you. Um. Thank you, Holly. And good morning, New Life Downtown. It is really, really, really good to be with you all this morning. I've been following the story of New Life and the story particularly of New Life Downtown uh, for several years on the blog and the website and occasionally through podcasts and uh, hearing a lot about you and this community and what's ha- what God is doing in and through New Life. Uh, and so it is a real honor and privilege Uh, to be here. And of course, it's always great to be back in Colorado as well uh, and being able to enjoy the sights of uh, the beautiful mountains, uh, quite a bit different than what we see in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, So this is just a real privilege, Stephen, to be here and wake up in the morning and see the mountains and uh, enjoy the sort of richness of God's beautiful creation. Uh, The first time that uh, my wife Sarah and I were in Colorado together was about 12 years ago. And we've both been here at other times along the way, but 12 years ago, we were engaged at the time, and Sarah's family invited me to join them on their summer family vacation. And we stayed up in Bailey, Colorado, at this place called Glen Isle. Has anybody ever been there before? It wouldn't surprise me if nobody had. Uh, Sarah's dad very much was trying to recover the nostalgia of Branson in the 1980s when they would go on these family vacations together, and so he scoured the country looking for the most rustic place that he could find uh, for the whole family to go, and so a la Clark Griswold, he loaded us all up and said, hey, let's go to, to this turn-of-the-century place uh, and enjoy our time together. Uh, so we, we got there, and Sarah's brother and I uh, shared the living room together where there were these two uh, couches with sofa sleepers in them. And uh, I have yet, I've, I've really in my whole lifetime met one sofa sleeper that was comfortable. Uh, this wasn't it. But these sofa sleepers really were unique, though, because most sofa sleepers, as you know, they have that like, lumbar support bar in the middle that sort of awkwardly lifts your hips above the rest of your body so that the, fl- the blood all sort of flows to your head, uh, and it's just an interesting sleeping experience. These ones, on the other hand, had no support whatsoever. When you lay down in the bed... Uh, Your whole body just sort of sunk into them as the mattress encompassed you, uh, sort of like a hammock or a cocoon somewhere in there. Uh, But believe it or not, sleeping in that bed wasn't as difficult as getting out, where you had to sort of like reach up on the sides and try to pull yourself out of the bed and then get an assist to get out of that space. But I really didn't have that much trouble sleeping there because I'm a really heavy sleeper. I can sleep just about anywhere and through just about anything, including the first year of a child's life, uh, which was really, really just good and healthy for our marriage, Um, (laughs) that the kids would cry all night and I wouldn't wake up at all. Uh, But there is this sense that I can just sleep. In fact, my roommates, uh, after college, I developed this really bad habit of falling asleep on the couch. And so my roommates, including a guy named Marty Irwin, who used to be on staff here, some of you might know Marty, they would would gather around on the other side of the room and start chucking pillows at my head just to see if I'd wake up. And I thought this was actually going on for weeks before I realized that they were doing it. This had become evening entertainment in our uh, apartment. I just, I wouldn't wake up. And one of the sort of interesting things, I don't know if it's related to being a heavy sleeper or not, but because of the way that I sleep, I rarely remember my dreams. I just don't have this sort of moment where I wake up in the morning and think about what I just was thinking about while I was sleeping. The major sort of exception to that is when I have recurring dreams, dreams that sort of happen over and over and over again, that suddenly I start to kind of remember those particular dreams. And I had one that I would always have during finals week, uh, particularly in seminary. So I had this dream that was finals week, and I was in this sort of pressure of trying to get the last papers done and the last uh, tests prepared for, and then all of a sudden, I would realize that I had registered for a course and never attended. Like, I just completely forgot about it. And so I would panic, and I would take off running for the professor's office And sort of like the prodigal son begin to like rehearse my plea for mercy. uh, Just running there going, okay, what am I going to say? How am I going to explain this? What is going to happen? And all the while like trying to find my inner Usain Bolt as if like getting there faster would make a difference. And it turns out I'm slow in my dreams as well. (laughs) Like I just, I couldn't get there. And then all of a sudden I would just stop. And I would realize that there was no way I could make up a semester's worth of work in a week. <gasps> and there was no way that this professor could grant me credit for work that I had never done. And even if they granted me some sort of an extension, I, I couldn't finish this. And I realized I had failed it failed this course. My GPA was now shot. There was nothing that I could do to fix it. And I would then, at that moment, wake up. I didn't wake up when I was sleeping in the sofa hammock. I didn't wake up when my roommates were pelting me with pillows from across the room. I woke up when I'd forgotten something. When I had forgotten something that was central to my sort of self-understanding, the core of kind of my identity at that time, I had, I had forgotten and it terrified me. And I woke up in this panic. And granted, there's a certain aspect of this that reveals that I've got some really inner perfectionist issues that I need to recover from. Uh, that is, this is one class. And who asks about your GPA after school? Nobody cares. Like, it was not the end of things, but it felt that way. But there is that greater reality, there is this sense for us that forgetting is absolutely terrifying. We build our lives around our ability to remember. And even forgetting the smallest thing, like where we put our keys or where we parked our car or maybe something larger like our anniversary, can cause us... It can send us into this sort of frenzied panic. And for those of us that have either struggled with memory loss or have loved ones to do, you see this every day, just how devastating not being able to remember can be. The loss of memory can be destructive and debilitating and even like taken to its extreme The absence of memory and being able to do that can be life-threatening. And there's a sense for us that our ability to remember is liberating. Our ability to remember is in many ways our deliverance kind of throughout the day. It's our saving grace in some capacity. Well, for those of you who are visiting or have been around for a while, this is the, either the eighth or ninth week in this extended series uh, here at New Life uh, on, that we're entitling The Story of Us. It's really a, ser- a sermon series through the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis, and uh, Pastor Glenn and Dr. Todd and Dr. Anthony have been walking us through these chapters and helping us to understand that this isn't just Abraham's story, but this is our story as well. This is the story we find ourselves in. This is the story that God's inviting us into because this really is a big part of God's story. The the story of how God is graciously restoring His creation and redeeming us as His people. And this particular week, we are in Genesis chapter 19, and we're picking up the story of Abraham's nephew, Lot, in the city of Sodom, which of course is the sermon that you always want to preach when you're the guest preacher uh, at a place, Glenn you know, asked me. He's like, hey, Jason, you're going to be in town. Will you preach? I'm like, yeah, man, that would be awesome. And then he told me that it was Genesis chapter 19. I'm trying not to believe that was deceptive on his part in any capacity. Uh, But we find that as we look at this overall passage, we've actually been prepared for this for some time that the writer of Genesis has been preparing us for the events that we are going to encounter here. He prepared us all the way back in Genesis chapter 13 as we read that story about how Abraham and Lot parted ways. That they were together and their flocks had become so numerous that they couldn't stay together. The land couldn't support them. So Abraham gave Lot choice of where he was going to settle. And Lot looked down into the valley. And he saw this plain that reminded him of Eden and Egypt. And he said, I'm going to settle there. And they split and they parted ways. And the narrator drops into the story of these two lines. A, this was all before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And by the way, the people of Sodom are really wicked people just drops these lines in, preparing us for what's going to happen. And then last week, as we took a look at Genesis chapter 18, we see that preparation continue. After Abraham has this sort of really beautiful encounter with the Lord and two messengers who come and visit him, and he prepares this banquet for them, and they reaffirm the covenant promises and talk about the promised child that's coming to them, we read that, uh, the Lord and Abraham and the two messengers set off toward Sodom. And at a point in the story, the Lord decides to let Abraham in on what we already know, decides to let Abraham in on the plan of what's going what's to happen. And Abraham responds to the Lord's revelation by assuming the end of the story. He assumes what we already know, he assumes that the Lord is going to come and visit. Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord says he's going to come and visit them because the outcry against them has been so great and their, their, their sin is so graven upon the earth. We see this sense that there's this outcry coming up. We don't know who the outcry is coming from. There are these unnamed, uh, these voices of Sodom's unnamed victims that are coming up to the Lord and pleading for God to do something. And God is now sending these two messengers into the city to figure out if the claims are true, to figure out if they, how things really are in Sodom, are things really as bad as these outcries make them out to be. So the Lord lets Abraham in, and Abraham assumes the end of the story. He assumes that the Lord is going to go down there and investigate, and he's going to destroy the city. But he also very interestingly assumes that the Lord is going to destroy the righteous along with the wicked. He makes this assumption that everybody's going to get swept up in this destruction. So he begins to negotiate with God because this doesn't sit well with him. It's like, wait a minute, this can't be right. This can't be who you are. And so he says to the Lord, he says, Lord, if there are 50 righteous people within the city... If there are 50 righteous people, will you consider sparing the entire city and really the cities that are around it, will you consider sparing them if there are 50 righteous there? Now, in a typical bartering sort of situation, we would expect that the Lord would counter Abraham's offer with a higher number. The Lord would come back and say, you know, something like, Yeah, I'll do it if there's 150, and then Abraham will come back and say, well, you know, what about 75? And the Lord will say, "Eh, well, about 125, and then they'll meet in the middle, and they'll settle on 100. But that's not what happens in the text. What happens is, is that Abraham says 50. He probably is assuming that he's pushing the Lord's lower limits and hoping to settle somewhere in the middle. But instead, the Lord just accepts his offer and says, yeah, sure. And so Abraham goes, you know, boldly where no man has gone before and says, wait a minute. And he lowers the offer and he keeps taking it down first by five and then by 10. And he takes the number all the way down to 10. And every single time the Lord agrees to relent from punishing if he finds that many people within the congregation within that city in commenting on this passage is an Old Testament scholar named Nathan McDonald that says this it says Yahweh the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob turns out to be far more merciful than Abraham imagines drawing the line at 10 indicates not only the depth of Sodom's sin but also that Abraham has not plumbed the depths of Yahweh's grace Yahweh turns out to be more gracious than all of us can imagine, and none of us have plumbed the depths of His mercy and His grace. In the Old Testament, the Lord is most frequently described as the God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and relenting from punishing. This is how he is most frequently described, that this is who God is, and this is the story that he's writing. He's writing a story of grace and mercy and redemption, but this is a drastically different picture than many of us imagine. And it's definitely a different picture than we imagine when we think about the chapter that we're getting ready to read. When we think about Genesis chapter 19, we don't think about a God who's gracious and compassionate and relenting from punishing We often look at passages like this and we read through, like, Bruce Almighty eyes. We're, like, waiting for the mighty smiter to come and just obliterate everything. But I wonder this morning, and I like us to sort of probe this question, I wonder if this passage is more about God's deliverance than his destruction. I wonder if this passage is more interested in teaching us something about God's mercy than God's judgment. There's maybe something here that we're missing that really is the focus and the emphasis in the passage. So in Genesis chapter 19, here's what we read. These two angels who were just with Abraham came to Sodom in the evening, this metaphor for moral darkness in the city, and Lot was sitting at the city gate. He's become sort of a a leader or an elder within the city. And when Lot saw the men, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself this face to the earth, and he said, my lords, please turn aside your servant's house and spend Spend the night and wash your feet and then rise up early and go on your way. He said, no, 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 we're, we're just going to spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside and they came to his house. And he made for them a feast, a, a baked unleavened bread and prepared a table for them and they ate. His hospitality is really reminiscent of the hospitality that Abraham extended this same group in the previous chapter. He is doing exactly what Abraham did and showing that he is more righteous than the people of Sodom. But he also wants to get the people out of sight and out of mind as quickly as possible and out of town. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. You notice that repetition? Both young and old, all the people to the last one. There's no sign of Abraham's ten. There's just Lot. It's really clear that things really are that bad here. It says, They called to Lot and they said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them to us that we may know them. The Hebrew word know can be a euphemism for sex. It's exactly what's happening here. They are making sort of a violent sexual overture toward these people. And Lot is deeply, deeply troubled he want these people want to violate Lot's guests, and in doing so, they're confirming that outcry that's come up against them. And they're particularly showing how even in the ancient world where there was this tendency, this really this kind of dominant culture to protect your guests, that they've even violated what general norms are for the time period. In that light, Lot went out to meet the men at the entrance, and he shut the door after him, and he said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. Lot courageously placed himself between the mob and those that had come to be his guests. Sort of courageously places himself there to protect them and to stop this from happening. But then he says this. He says, behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. What? Like, up until this point, we're like tracking with Lot, right? Yeah, 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 Lot, Lot okay, Lot's doing the right thing. He's welcoming them. He's standing in this place of protection. But now he's offering his daughters? Like This is it's deeply troubling to us. And biblical commentators have always tried to figure this out like, what is actually happening here? How do we explain this? And there are two general options. Option number one is that in the ancient world, hospitality was considered a sacred duty. You were bound in this honor and shame culture to protect your guest at all costs. And so, in, in trying to fulfill that virtue, he commits this vice of offering his daughters, chooses what maybe in his culture would be considered the lesser of two evils. The other option, the option I actually find more compelling, is that Lot's lying. Right? Abraham's already lied about Sarah's marital status. He's going to lie in the next chapter about it as well. And I think a better reading of the Hebrew text is that Lot's daughters are already married and they're not in the house. And Lot, in some way, is trying to buy time. Or perhaps, by even suggesting the thought, maybe these people will come to their senses and think, surely, this is not a good way to treat your guests. That something like that will happen. But either way, it doesn't really take out sort of that discomfort that we feel when we read words like this. And in fact, it doesn't even alleviate the entire discomfort of the text, as the very end of the chapter, we find that Lot and his daughters have been rescued and they're living in this cave and Lot's daughters get him drunk and they sleep with him and they get pregnant and they have kids in order to keep their family line going. It's like we, the whole chapter ends with incest. So our, we're just walking through all of this stuff and there's that challenge for us in the midst of these kinds of texts. To not focus on what the humans are doing, to not focus on what people are doing, but to try to figure okay, where's God in the midst of this? What is it that God's doing in the midst of this story? It can be, we can be so overcome by what we see the people of Sodom doing, by what we see Lot doing, by what we see Lot's daughters doing, that we forget to stop and look and see, okay, where is God at work in the middle of all of this craziness? Where's the divine in the midst of the dysfunction? It's a challenge not only in reading the text, but in our lives, right? As we find things spinning out of control at different places, it can be so easy to focus on all the things that are happening and so easy to miss God at work in the middle of it. The challenge of the text is to say, okay, but where is God in the middle of this? And we pick up the story in verse 9. And the men of Sodom responded to Lot's offer, and they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came just here as a stranger to sojourn. Who is he to judge? Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew, down to break the, drew to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and then shut the door. Lot has placed himself in this position of trying to protect and trying to save. But it turns out Lot's the one who needs saving. That Lot's the one who really needs to be rescued. And so in this moment, these two angels reach out and they pull Lot back in. I wonder how many times that's true for us as well. We try to fix something. We try to stand in the gap or stand in the middle or do our part and then we find out we really, ourselves, need to be rescued. Even in the situations that we find ourselves trying to help and trying to fix, we so desperately need God's deliverance. Then jump down to verse 15. It says, When morning dawned, when that darkness ended, the angels urged Lot and said, Get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, literally the Hebrew text is who were found, or else you will be consumed in the punishment of the city. Lot's whole family is being saved. His sons in laws had the choice to come along for the ride as well, but they thought their father in law was joking because this is what fathers-in-laws do, right? They joke about massive destruction in order to get their daughters back. So so they just thought he was joking, and they they skipped out. As the text continues, though, we see that this really interesting statement, said, but Lot lingered. I have no clue what he's doing. Like he knows what's going to happen. He's already seen, already been told, and yet he lingers in this place. And so the men seized him again, and his wife, and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord mercifully, uh, being merciful to him, led him outside of the city. When lot boldly sort of stood between the mob and the messengers, they rescued him. And when lot lingered, they rescued him as well, both in those places where he was being strong And in the places that he was weak, he encountered the Lord's gracious deliverance in the midst of where he was. The Lord had mercy on him. When they brought him outside, they said, flee for your life and do not look back or stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the hills or else you will be consumed. And Lot said to them, oh, no, my Lord, I've found favor with you and you've shown your great kindness to me. But I I can't do that. I can't flee to the hills. It's just too far and I'm afraid that the disaster is going to overtake me. The Hebrew word there for kindness is the word chesed that Dr. Todd talked about a few weeks ago. That he's shown him his covenant faithfulness, his covenant loyalty. The Lord has shown he's able to keep his promises. And lots in the sense saying, hey, you rescued me from the mob and you already transported me outside of the city, but listen, I'm afraid. I'm still afraid. And I'm not going to make it, so let's make a deal. And so he said, hey, there's this little city, let me go there, let me escape to that little one, and then my life will be saved. And they respond and say, very well, I grant you this favor too, and I will not overthrow the city which you were spoken of. Lot was afraid, and he doubted the Lord's ability to take him the rest of the way, but the Lord was merciful to Lot and delivered him. But not only did he deliver Lot, he delivered this entire city. The city of Zoar, which is set to be destroyed as well, became rescued on behalf of Lot's plea. Lot saw Lot and rescued them both. And as the story continues, of course, we see that Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed and Lot's wife looks back and she gets caught up in the punishment, but Lot and his daughters make it to Zoar. They are rescued as is that city. And through this passage, it certainly depicts these really graphic pictures of God's judgment. But there is this other sense where the bulk of the chapter focuses on God's mercy. It focuses in on His mercy in the midst of judgment and His deliverance of people out of destruction. That's the bulk of the chapter. We get a fuller picture of this when we actually look at the bookends of the story. We look at how the story of Sodom really begins and where the story of Sodom ends. And the story of Sodom begins back in chapter 18 as Abraham and Yahweh are having this conversation about how the Lord is going to go down and visit the place of Sodom. God decided to let Abraham know exactly why he's doing this. He says this in verse 19, For I have chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised. God decided to let Abraham in on what was going on because he commissioned Abraham to teach his children, the children who become the nation of Israel, the children who were to be a blessing to all of the other nations, to teach them that the way of the Lord is in doing righteousness and justice. In enacting righteousness and justice in the world, and so Abraham was supposed to teach them how to do this, not just to be righteous and justice, but to actually do what is right and what is just. And so God decided to let Abraham in. It's in the doing of righteousness and justice that the Lord will fulfill his covenant. It's in doing what is right and just that Abraham and his children will be a blessing to the nations. Elsewhere, this phrase, doing righteousness and justice, is, com- is consistently uh, associated with God delivering the oppressed, God delivering the, the poor and the orphan and the widow and the marginalized and those who are victims, God rescuing them. That's exactly what happens here, that God does not turn a blind eye to injustice, instead he hears the cries of the oppressed and he delivers them from their oppressors. It's easy to miss in Genesis 19 that not only did the Lord deliver a lot, but he delivered Zoar. And not only did he deliver Zoar, but he delivered all of those unnamed victims whose voices were crying out and asking the Lord to do something on their behalf. We miss his deliverance. Yahweh's people should actually be the same kind of people that we should be the kind of people who aren't just right and just, but actually do that in the world, who hear the cry of the oppressed and partner with God to bring them deliverance. See, what Abraham, though, doesn't understand at this point in the the narrative, and what we struggle to understand ourselves, is that when God does righteousness and justice, he does so with mercy. That when God does what is right and just, he does so with mercy. Mercy. He extends mercy without ignoring injustice. He extends mercy without ignoring injustice. God was willing, I would say, even wanting to spare all of the cities if there were just 10 righteous people. He's extending mercy. He sent two messengers to investigate to see if the claims were even true. Two messengers who, by the way, had the power to rescue. But instead of receiving them, Sodom wanted to harm them. It's extending mercy throughout this passage. And we actually see the opposite response somewhere else in the Old Testament, in the book of Jonah. Right? The city of Nineveh is described in very similar terms as the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God looks at this prophet Jonah. Says, "Arise and go to the city of Nineveh, this great city, because the outcry against them has come to me, and their sin is really great." And so Jonah has this, you know, little meandering, uh, ends up in the belly of a fish, but you know, finally ends up back in Nineveh, and he proclaims what the Lord is about to do. And what happens? Every single Ninevite repents. They turn away from their evil and the injustice, the wickedness that is in their hands. The oppressors stop oppressing. And what does God do? He relents from sending punishment. Of course, the really interesting thing about the book of Jonah is that when this happens, Jonah's just ticked. <laughs> right? I mean, he is furious with God that he would do this. He is furious that God would extend mercy instead of just simply enacting his justice. In a sense, justice has been achieved because those who are pressing have repented, and God extends mercy to them. And Jonah just throws this tantrum. It's like he throws himself on the floor of King Super and starts kicking his arms and his legs and flailing about and just angry. And this never happens to any of us. Um, You know, it doesn't happen in our family because we don't have King Super in Oklahoma, so our kids choose Chick-fil-A and church for for their tantrums. I choose my bedroom for my tantrums, you know, where no one else can see uh, as they cry out to God and and, and upset about one thing or another. But see, Nineveh was the major city in the Assyrian Empire, in this city of this empire who was Israel's arch enemies. And Jonah is really upset that the God of Israel would extend mercy to Israel's enemies. See, Jonah wants justice without mercy. That's so what Jonah's crying out for. It's what he longs for is to see justice without mercy, but God always offers both. He extends mercy without ignoring injustice because we need both. We are both oppressor and Oppressed. We have both done evil and had evil done to us. It's never as simple as just as what it seems to be sometimes on the surface. And if you're not certain of that, just come and spend some time with our daughters and try to figure out who started any fight, right? There's always this mixed story of who's at fault in the middle of these things. It's so easy for us to point fingers and to blame, to talk about who started it. We've been doing it since Eden, right? Right? The Lord said, hey, who told you? Well, the woman and the snake, and we just point fingers and blame. But we need both justice and mercy. The other side, the other bookend of the story, is this really kind of strange passage in Genesis 19.29. It says, So it was when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overflow, when he overflew the cities in which Lot had lived. When God destroyed the cities, God remembered Abraham? Like, why not God remembered Lot? Why does it say God remembered Abraham? Interesting, this phrase, God remembered, occurs three other times in the Old Testament. The first time it occurs is in Genesis chapter 8. It says God remembered Noah and pushed back the flood. The next time is in Genesis chapter 30. It says, God remembered Rachel and opened her womb, and she gave birth to Joseph, who would rise up to become the savior of his people and the savior of Egypt, the one who blesses the nations on God's behalf. And the fourth time that it happens is in the book of Exodus. Then God heard heard the cries of his people, and he remembered the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then he called Moses to come and deliver his people. And God remembered. Each of these situations is very deeply connected with God's covenant, with his promises, that God remembers his covenant. And when God remembers his covenant, he delivers. When God remembers his covenant, he rescues. This is what happens when God remembers. When God's memory is our deliverance, his memory is our saving grace. He is the one who remembers and then rescues us from whatever mess we happen to find ourselves in. God remembers his covenant. His memory is our saving grace. When God remembers, he delivers, and he does so by extending mercy without ignoring injustice. And the really good news is that God always remembers. God always remembers his covenant, God always delivers. He always extends mercy without ignoring injustice. And we see this most clearly in the person of Jesus. When God remembers Jesus, he rescues us. The God remembered his promises, and so he recognized that to be faithful to the covenant, he also needed to be faithful to, for us on our behalf. And he sent Jesus into the world remembering all of the promises he made to rescue his good creation and redeem his people. So he sent Jesus in the world to be faithful for us where we continue to fail. He sent Jesus in the world to stretch out his arms in mercy while enacting injustice. To send Jesus into the world to take the punishment of sin on our behalf, to bury it in the tomb, and then be raised. Again, that we might have new life and participate in new creation with God through His Son. God always remembers. So when God remembered Abraham, He rescued Lot. And when God remembered Jesus, He rescues us. God always remembers. The people who forget are us, right? And that's why we gather together every Sunday and we come to this table. We come because we're the ones who actually need to be reminded. We're the ones that need to remember that in the middle of wherever we find ourselves in, whatever spot we are in life, wherever we find ourselves in this journey, that God remembers, and when God remembers, he delivers. So we come to the table to remind ourselves of who our God is and the story that God's telling and the story he's inviting us into.